Hello, everyone, and welcome to Think Change, a podcast from ODI, where we discuss some of the world's most pressing global issues with a variety of experts and commentators. I'm your host, Sara Pantuliano, ODI's chief executive. Now, the war in Ukraine continues to dominate the headlines. We are already feeling the reverberations from what at ODI are, we are calling the triple shock of the crisis, you know, a perfect storm of the economic, energy and food risks. A looming food crisis could have devastating consequences across the world. It could exacerbate inequality. It could further slow the recovery from the pandemic. So we really wanted to take a step back and try and understand what's really going on here, You know what, what we can do to avoid an even, an even bigger crisis potentially. To help me unpack these issues, I'm joined by my colleagues, Sherilyn Rager. Sherilyn is a research fellow in ODI's International Economic Development Group. Um, and Steve Wiggins, Principal Research Fellow in ODI's Climate and Sustainability Team. Um, Steve and Sherilyn, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Hello, everyone. Along with Steve and Sherilyn, we're really delighted to welcome Dr. Sarah Tabor. Um, Sarah is a crop scientist who shares some incredibly insightful advice and uh, um, ideas on what we can do to mitigate food crisis. Follow her on Twitter. Um, we've been really uh, impressed by what she has to say. So it's great to have you on the show, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, let's get started. We've been hearing a lot about the knock-on effect of the war in Ukraine, you know, how it is driving up in you know, a global prices, and of course the risk that this could lead to you know widespread food insecurity and potentially even famine, you know, that people are talking about in some parts of the world. But I'd like to really get to the bottom and understand what the factors at play really are. Uh, what is the chain of events that is taking place? Sherilyn, maybe I'll start with you. Can you Tell us about the impact that the war is having on global prices and how they are interlinked. Yes, um, of course. Um, so as what uh, we've been seeing, the war in, uh, in Ukraine has devastating effects on human lives and economic activities uh, directly in Ukraine and to a large extent in Russia as they face uh, economic sanctions from mostly European economies and the United States. So while many of the low and middle income countries do not have direct um, economic links with Russia and Ukraine, Russia is a major global supplier of oil and metals and together with Ukraine is a major supplier of wheat. So countries worldwide will inevitably feel the impact of this war, at least through the trade of these major commodities in terms of one, reduced volumes, and then the second is on higher prices. So what we're seeing indeed since the assault of Russia in Ukraine on 24th of February is that global wheat prices has increased already by almost 30% and oil by about 8%. So you can imagine that uh, in the short term, countries that would be hurt the most through this price effects are those that are food import dependent. Now, um, if we focus on the food angle, which is the uh, topic of this podcast, is that since food expenses typically constitute a large part of the poorest household budget and spending pattern, then the global spikes could easily push up food prices and um, push more people into poverty that's at the micro level. And if you look at the macro level, this could accelerate inflation. 
So these are just the first round of effects. If we talk about the second round of effects of this inflation being persistent, this could feed into many aspects of macroeconomic instability. And for many low- and middle-income countries with very limited fiscal uh, space coming out of the pandemic, addressing additional risk from on their food security and other compounding effects of this war would be very devastating for them. Thanks, Sherilyn. You make me wonder what the impact actually would be on supply chains and more generally on markets. Seda, maybe you can comment on this. In terms of impact on, you want me to talk about impact on markets? Okay, so one of the most important things to understand about food shortages and famines is that um, famines are rarely caused by lack of food. Famines usually come from the food costs too much for certain people, or in the case of we have countries, a lot of these importing countries have government programs where the government purchases the wheat and distributes it. So in that case, it's not the people who are buying the wheat, it's the governments. And so the governments are putting a lot of their budget into food. So again, you have the same situation where it's a, whether it's people who's the consumer or the government. Uh, the issue is not that there's a lack of food, the issue is the food costs too much and it either collapses household budgets or it collapses governmental budgets. Um, Really, the, the top economist for pulling into this is Amartya Sen. Uh, he got a Nobel Prize for this work, and it's stunning to me how many people still seem to not understand it. We've been talking about this for decades. Um, it has been hundreds of years since there was a famine caused by a shortage of food. It has been hundreds of years. That's a really important point to emphasize, actually. So the reason that this happens, and again, this is something that I'm very sensitive to as a person in the United States, a very wealthy country, I experienced food insecurity. I had times in my life when I could not get enough food. It was obviously not because there wasn't enough food. It's because the United States has some money problems. <laughs> it has a lot of uh, poverty and inequality. And, you know, that puts a lot of people in to hunger situations, even though there's plenty of food. And so this thing that like I personally experienced, so maybe I'm very sensitive to this, um, but watching the markets go nuts. Um, as a person who's a crop scientist, again, I work in produce. I don't actually work in grains. Um, but I know enough about agriculture. I know enough about trade, crop harvests, uh, crop forecasts, logistics, to understand that something was very, very wrong in the way this was being reported early on. So I started digging in. I started talking to some of my colleagues who work in the grain, grain trade. I've relied very heavily on them uh, to, to pick apart what's happening here. But the, the story that I was hearing coming out in the news was there's not enough wheat. Which, as somebody who works in crop science, it's actually very easy to grow more wheat. And people started actually back in November because wheat futures started rising as conflict began to look likely in the Black Sea area. People who work in crop production understand that this could cause a wheat shortage in several months. And in the Northern Hemisphere, most of our wheat is actually planted in the fall. So if you see prices start going up in the fall, what are you going to do? You're going to take some of your acreage and maybe put more wheat on it than you had before. Um, I think people kind of get a mistaken idea that this is a cornfield and it will only ever make corn and that's a soybean field and it will only ever make soy. We have a little bit more flexibility, I think, than people might imagine. Um, and it's actually quite easy to grow more wheat. And that's what the world has been doing already, starting back in November. Um, so I saw these panicky reports coming out and I said, I know this can't be right. So I started digging. So again, um, there, there's enough wheat actually like wheat kind of and, and other bulk crops tend to go through production cycles where you'll have a glut. And so the prices go low for a couple of years. And so people don't grow as much for a few years. So it's normal to have some fluctuation in global supplies 
right now we are kind of entering the bottom of of kind of one of those waves and we were about to increase production anyway so that maybe some of what we're seeing was it was it was on the way up anyhow and that's also part some of part of why we hear stories about wheat stocks being being low it's a normal part of the production cycle sometimes there's a lot and sometimes there's less and that is kind of how prices equalize um during normal times that's not a problem that's a cycle we're used to going through it's just that we also had this giant crisis hit at the bottom of the cycle um so again globally there's plenty of wheat now like we said most famines happen when there's plenty of food so let's talk about how that goes down um, a lot of the countries that are being hit by shortages right now we're importing from ukraine part of that is because ukraine is centrally located to the middle east and north africa that's that's kind of where most of these countries tend to be concentrated um so ukraine is centrally located for all of them it has very good sea lanes she, uh, sea is the cheapest way to ship things so something like a staple food you want to transport it quickly and cheaply so ocean shipping is the best way to do that um through their black sea ports in ukraine and, and russia on the black sea um there's all that food that's not leaving ukraine is still in ukraine so as soon as the ports come back online as soon as russia stops blockading it as soon as they get out of there leave them all and let them use their ports the food is going to start flowing in i don't want to say immediately because we got to rebuild the port but very quickly right the food has not been destroyed so far, knock on wood. The assaults have been mostly concentrated on urban areas, disabling ports, dis disabling infrastructure. Um, last I heard from a webinar given by some crop folks in Ukraine, only about 10 silos had been damaged in, in all of the attacks because the fighting is not in rural areas. Um, I've been surprised to hear how many people expect, because it's a war in Europe, we're going immediately back to tank warfare from World War II. Uh, out in the open fields, that's not what's happening. We're not getting World War One trench warfare. It's urban fighting because that's how modern fighting happens in forests, mountains, urban areas. That's where you can hide from air support. <laughs> so that's where battles happen. It's not in rural areas. Crops at this time have not been affected. The food is still there. Crop prices are actually crazy low in Ukraine right now because so many people have left and there's, but all the food is still there. Um, so kind of conversing with colleagues in the crop production area in Ukraine is is really interesting. They're they're up to they're up against some crazy boundaries and obstacles, but they're still getting their crops planted. All the food is still there. So the problem is that it's not leaving Ukraine and getting to these destination countries. Not that the food is not there, right? Um, and I just, I'm going to repeat this many times because people seem to have a hard time absorbing it, but the food is all there. It's just not moving. So our problem is not supply, it is distribution. That is always how famines happen. Um, so we have a lot of ships that carry grain that are stuck in the Black Sea because Russia's blockading them. We have ports that can't be used. Uh, Ukraine is continuing to move as much grain as it can west on rail, which is very, very difficult and very slow. The volume that they could get up to once they maxed out is about 10% of their Black Sea export volume. Um, the, they have Soviet-era rails, which are a different width than the Western ones. And so when they get to the border, they have to like lift... They have yeah, to move the grain into different vehicles. Uh, it's a very slow way to do it, but they're continuing to do the best they can because they like to export crops. Um, you want to keep your economy going as much as possible. The resilience of Ukraine and determination to keep going as much as possible as normal in spite of what is happening is astounding. And I just hats off to them. Um, and in the meantime, we have, again, importing countries. So if you are... Egypt, you know, something like 90% of their wheat is imported. Um, you know, they historically have been a major wheat exporting area, but because of um, urbanization of former farm areas, and then also concentration on when they do farm, it's higher value crops like 
dates, cotton, things that bring in more revenue, wheat has kind of moved out of their picture. So they're adjusting that right now. Um, they've also been in talks with other wheat exporting countries like Australia and India. Um, Cause again, like Australia just had a bumper crop of wheat. Um, and because they're in the Southern hemisphere, they're offset. So like the world has a lot of wheat exporting regions. It's, it's not just Ukraine. Um, so a lot of these countries have entered into talks with other wheat exporting nations. The problem is they're further away. So if you're Egypt, Ukraine is right there. But if you know, India is a little further away and then Australia is further away still, right? So you can have the same volume of ships, the same number of ships moving wheat, but it takes them twice as long to go back and forth, right? So they can only make half as many trips. They can only carry half as much wheat. And I think that's a lot of what we're actually seeing right now is there's plenty of wheat sitting in Australia. I think India is actually... India had a record-breaking wheat crop this year and record-breaking exports. And I think they've actually managed to move all or most of it by now. Um, their wheat harvest started back in March. And so they were moving it very, very quickly. Thank you so much, Sarah. Those were incredibly powerful points. And actually, Steve, is something that you've also written about, you know, just yes. recently. Um, so it really resonates. But given what Sarah has just said, how do you assess the danger of, you know, famine as so many are talking about in some countries? Is that, you know, um, misplaced? Uh, is it exaggerated? Or there is still a danger that, you know, for some countries, the food security crisis could uh, escalate into a full-blown famine? Okay, Sarah, if, we, if, if we're looking at the moment, what we're looking at uh, in terms of crop prices is we're looking at wheat and maize prices, which are 50% more than they were last September, which is a bit of a shock. We're looking at fertilizer prices, particularly urea and potash, which are up by similar levels. So the question then is, what does this mean for vulnerable people in low-income countries or almost low-income countries? Because we've got some agencies who are talking about very large increases of people who, are, who will go hungry, major effects on nutrition, and some people have used the famine word. Now, we had a look at the, the potential impacts of these higher prices of, of wheat, maize, and fertilizer on four countries, Mali, Kenya, Sudan, and Yemen, um, at the behest of the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. And we did a rapid review and we said, well, what does this mean to these countries, focusing on what the degree of exposure to higher international prices is. And what you see is a very different picture from country to country. So if we take Mali, almost all the staples in Mali are homegrown. In the towns, people are eating homegrown rice. In the villages, people are eating homegrown millet and sorghum. Very little wheat is consumed in, in Mali. And the little bit that's consumed is baguettes for middle-class people in Bamako. It is really not an issue for ordinary people in Mali. Really, what's happening for Mali doesn't matter. Yep. Then we take the case of Kenya, where Kenya produces a wide range of staple foods, but there is also considerable consumption of wheat in Kenya, and particularly by low-income households in the cities. Wheat is used to make bread, pasta, noodles, mandazes, which are a kind of snack. And the great thing about wheat products is they are hyper-convenient. 
very fast to prepare. If you're a working mum in Nairobi, wheat products are what you're eating. So those people on low incomes in Nairobi are exposed to these price increases. Most rural households in Kenya are eating maize, beans, plantain, sweet potato, cassava, and so on. They are really very little exposed to the international price increases. Then you go to the case of Sudan. Well, of course, in Sudan, rural people may be eating millets and sorghum still, but the urban population massively eating baladi bread, rustic bread, the price of which is held down below the world market price by the Sudanese government. What this means in the Sudan is that if the government continues to hold the baladi price down, and politically that is hugely sensitive, it's going to cost the government of, of Sudan quite a lot more. Almost all the wheat in, in Sudan, 80% or more, is imported, and 90% of what's imported is coming from the Black Sea countries. It's coming from Russia, Ukraine, and, and Kazakhstan. So, Sudan. So, Steve, just to explain to our listeners that baladi is uh, the daily bread that it's uh, the um, bread. It's the stuff where you see the pictures of the guys on the on the cycles balancing about 48 of these on a pallet on their head. It's unbelievable. Uh, Yemen, our fourth country that we looked at, of course, Yemen is in its seventh year of civil war and is in a parlous state. And in Yemen, overwhelmingly, whether you're in a village or you're in a city, you're eating baladi bread, you're eating flatbread. Uh, and that's all from imported wheat, very low production inside of Yemen. And half of that wheat is coming from the Black Sea countries. So Yemen is brutally exposed to any price increases coming on the wheat price. So that's the picture you get. It's tremendously qualified by the conditions in the country, tremendously uneven impact. Some countries are horribly exposed. Other countries, not at all, sir. Thanks, Steve. So you clearly have looked in depth at these four countries, but I just want to ask Sherilyn and Sarah if they see um, particular risks or particular you know, impact for a number of countries, and, and, and if so, which ones? Um, Sherilyn, maybe I'll start with you. Yes, um, thank you for this uh, very important question and also coming from the points raised by Steve on Sudan, Yemen. So we've done a, an ODI paper examining the uh, vulnerabilities of 118 low and middle income countries to the impact of war. And I cannot help as we go through this conversation how food security Food prices are heavily interlinked with the structure of, of these economies and how they stand against all the threats and impact, negative impact of this war. So let me maybe step back a bit and give you some overview of the channels of impact and how these channels are related to food security implications. So when we examine the vulnerabilities of 118 um, low and middle income countries, there are three factors. So first, how directly exposed are they to Ukraine and Russia in terms of bilateral trade, investment, remittances, migration, because this will all impact incomes in low and in middle income countries and, of course, their purchasing power for food and, you know, ability, food affordability, accessibility, etc. So when we look at this, of course, we're not surprised that the most expor, uh, exposed 
for the former USSR countries. So we have Belarus, for example. And Belarus, uh, it's total trade alone. So export and imports is uh, worth 62% of GDP. So bilateral trade with Ukraine and Russia is uh, about 62% of its national input. So you can see, we can imagine that if this war gets prolonged, the USSR, former USSR countries would be heavily affected. So other countries remotely situated from Russia and Ukraine will also be affected through the global effects of the war. So depending on their position, whether they are net importer of fuel, food, and other commodities which show soaring prices right now, or maybe how their uh, economy structures are highly dependent on trade, remittances, and foreign direct investment flow. So we were looking at countries like Montenegro, Jordan, and Maldives here that are exposed through this channel. But I think when um, Steve has mentioned Sudan and Yemen, we also look at this third factor that is very related to these economies, and this is about their resilience. What is the policy space of these countries to absorb the shocks in case this um, this negative effect um, materialize in their economies? So here we are looking that you know we examine the inflationary pressures that this country that this 118 countries have already experiencing because of the pandemic most of them have declining foreign reserves or already squeezed fiscal resources so these countries that are disresilient or the fragile and conflict affected situations one the top the top ones on our list are Lebanon, Syria, and Yemen. And then other countries that are experiencing high debt distress, such as Burundi, Laos, and Zambia, are also at greatest risk for this. So there are many elements of uh, vulnerability to assess how countries are particularly affected and through what channels. But I also wanted to raise some issues on food security Um so we did some correlations of data for low-income countries alone and how and what are the food security implications. So what we see from the data is that low-income countries tend to have higher share of net food imports as a percent of their total imports. So if I'm a low-income country, I tend to import a lot. But at the same time, I also tend to have low foreign reserves. So you can imagine that the greatest risk to food security, if I'm a low-income country, I tend to import a lot. I don't have foreign reserves to finance it, and I'm facing expensive import prices. So inevitably, this will feed on to inflation or what we say uh, inflation pass through. And the most that would be affected as what uh, we've been discussing earlier is the poorest countries who tend to have a large share of their budget dedicated on food. And alarmingly, there is um, there are some recent reports showing that some countries are now um, imposing export-related bans of food. So we have um, Kyrgyzstan, Turkey, and Kazakhstan started um, imposing some restrictions on some of their grain exports. We have Argentina started restrictions on their beef exports and Indonesia on their palm exports. And what we've seen from the 2008 price hikes is that these export bans are common and these tend to contribute to global insecurity in terms of food availability. So these are quite alarming. Thanks, Sherilyn. You raised some really, really important points, you know, particularly around crop supply. Uh, Sarah, that's something you have been looking at particularly. Uh, what do you think are the critical issues to address there? Again, I, to me, what I see, again, like I don't have 
you know, a bird's eye view into the whole economy. I just know what I know, right? The thing that I'm seeing top of the list is transportation. It's shipping. So again, we have a situation where we have both much increased shipping times from the places that have plenty of wheat right now, uh, India, Australia, um, to some extent, the United States, but we don't have the shipping capacity to handle that increase. And not only that, but a lot of the ships that used to haul wheat are stuck in the Black Sea and can't do it. So not only do we have longer shipping times, but we actually have fewer ships right now. Um, so that that's really what I'm seeing. Um, I think it's also important to remember that we talked about there's two reasons that Ukraine is the main supplier for so much of the world's exports. Um, it's not because it's the only place you can grow wheat, like we talked about. Like wheat is actually pretty easy to grow. Like you don't become a staple crop by being finicky, right? Uh, every staple crop is easy to grow, very adaptable. You can grow in a lot of places. So the reason Ukraine has so much importance for this region is number one location, but number two, a lot of uh, aid agencies and government food programs um, are basically required to source their grain in certain ways. Again, this is not an area that I have that much insight into, but there's there's certain strictures as to where they can source it, and Ukraine happens to check most of those boxes. So it's not only location, but it's also we have four countries that are reliant on these food programs. They have some barriers in place that have made Ukraine the top spot. Again, it's not because Ukraine is the only place you can grow wheat. It's because of some people decisions, right? So maybe we can go back and revise some of those. So that's getting more into policy. Again, I'm not clear on what those strictures are, but we have some and maybe we can go back and reevaluate them. We have all these people working with Oxfam and all these other aid agencies that are panicking about how they're going to get enough wheat. Maybe let's look at some of the reasons they've been limited on their supply. That would be a thing. Right. And so what role is inflation really playing here? There is something else I wanted to stress. Uh, we've been talking about inflation as a part of this. So do we all remember when the inflation started? Was it when the attacks happened or was it back in January before that? So can we talk really quickly about the role in inflation that was already being a concerning thing for a couple months and then the invasion happened? Let's talk about that. Okay, so this is the thing we can get into. So, and this is specifically, I can I can really give more detail on the United States because that's where I am. Those are the crop markets I know better. Um, but to some extent, this is being reflected in world markets because the U.S. is such a large player. Um, so when inflation is coming down the pike, you have a lot of institutional investors. So like hedge funds, pension funds, just people with a lot of money. You have institutional and larger investors who say inflation is coming. How do I protect my money or how do I how do I stay ahead? How do I not sink, you know, during inflation? So there are a few ways to do this. Um, some people are trying Bitcoin and crypto. Mm unproven um <laughs> we'll go with that uh another kind of protective area people are going into is putting your assets into gold that's traditionally uh, a popular haven i will say gold is actually quite useless and so it's values driven more by people believing that gold is important rather than what gold can be used for real estate can be another big one so that's something we're seeing in the united states is critical housing shortages because all these people throwing their money into real estate as a hedge against inflation is driving up the price of housing far beyond what most people can afford we have tent cities in places we've never had them before in the united states we've already been having a lot of accelerating housing problems before but it's getting very very bad right now um so that's another reason it's it's not because the demand for housing is if this were about supply and demand there would not be people living in tents and empty houses right? And that's what we're seeing. So that price spike in housing in the United States is being driven by rich people trying to hedge their assets against inflation. It is not driven by demand for housing. And the other great places to put your money during inflation are food, fuel, and fertilizer. Does that trio sound familiar? <laughs> yeah. 
And in 2008, we saw the same thing. We saw spikes in the prices of food, fuel, and fertilizer. There was no invasion of Russia or Ukraine at that time. You know, like there was no conflict in the Black Sea area threatening supplies of food, fuel, and fertilizer in 2008. That was driven strictly by people trying to hedge their money against not just inflation, but also in just very difficult economic times. Food, fuel, and, and fertilizer are very are considered very safe havens of assets to put your money into. You just buy a lot of them. And the reason for that is food, fuel, and fertilizer are critical goods. So we talked about how gold is kind of a popular hedge, but it's also useless. Food, fuel, and fertilizer are critical supplies. And the reason they're a safe place to put your money is because they're inelastic, right? So inelastic is a fancy economics word for no matter how much it costs, people will pay it because if they don't, they die. That's what an elastic commodity means, right? So if you're a rich person facing inflation or, or serious disruptions to the economy, you start buying a lot of futures or just a lot of stockpiles of food, fuel, and fertilizer. So that's what we've been seeing in the United States. Starting in January, February, when we started having those big inflation numbers come out, we had a lot of rich people and a lot of just fund managers going, oh my God, we got we to gotta hedge ourselves against inflation. So they started buying up food, fuel, and fertilizer, futures, things like that. So a future is... Um, you know, you go to the store and you buy something right now. So that's that's called like the spot market, right? You just buy something on the spot. Futures are when you say, hey, on June 6th, I want to buy 80 tons of wheat of this type, you know, from you. So that's a future. That's a contract to buy it in the future. So in the United States, a lot of commodities are handled on the futures market. Um, for example, if you're a wheat mill that makes flour, you want to make sure that you have a steady supply through the year. And you understand that availability kind of goes up and down. So it gets cheaper during wheat harvest. And maybe like six months after wheat harvest, you know, you want to make sure that you still have a steady supply. So you arrange for futures at that time. So price kind of goes up over time to pay people for the cost of storing that wheat. So mm -hmm. with a wheat futures market has kind of a normal cycle to it. However, um, again, wheat futures started going up back in November because people who are kind of deeply involved in the trade saw that we may have some supply shortages. So wheat mills and things like them, they were willing to pay a little bit more to ensure that they had a steady supply seeing that, right? So starting in November, we already have some a little bit of increase due to that. It wasn't very severe. It was kind of like within the normal fluctuation level. Um, people were just in the know. We're a little bit willing to pay more for, for wheat security. So that actually was useful in some ways because it stimulated more planting of wheat. There are some times when markets work very well, and there's also times when they don't. Um, an effective market depends on everybody having access to information and understanding what it means. That is a situation that almost never exists in real life. <laughs> so again, like back in November, we had the futures going up because people in the know understood what was going on. They knew how to interpret that data and how to like, okay, this presents this much risk. This is how much more we're willing to pay. Starting in January and February, you just had fund managers who have never really dealt with wheat that much before going, what do I do? Inflation's coming. I don't know. Throw it into commodities. Let's go into, into futures. Mm -hmm. So something I want to emphasize when we're talking about um, wheat shortages. So what we actually have right now is not a shortage. There's enough wheat. There's actually just enough wheat to fulfill global demand, which for people in wealthy countries accustomed to gluts feels scary. So what we have right now is not a global shortage. We have a global enoughage. <laughs> That's like a new situation for a lot of people. Um, the last time that wealthy countries faced the potential for shortage of wheat was 1972, 1973. Mm -hmm. It was 50 years ago. So I think it's very important that we understand that this is not just like this, this food panic that we're having, like the, the concern what everybody's having over food. Um, 
is not just causing inflation. Like we had inflation already happening before the attack started. So we already had people bidding up wheat and then the attack started. And so you had a lot of funds with lots of wheat, fuel, fertilizer in their portfolios who could benefit a whole lot from prices continuing to go up and up and up and up. So you have a lot of people with a lot of access to the media who have, who need their portfolios to expand, who are telling people, oh my God, there might be a shortage. We better get more now. So I think that's a thing that we're seeing. This inflation problem did not start with the attack. It was going on for a while before. It was, we already had an escalating inflation cycle and then the attacks happened in a way with such timing that a lot of people had lots of incentive to further inflate fears of panics and further inflate prices. That's a lot of what we're seeing here. So again, this is why I'm so insistent on us all remembering that there's actually enough out there. Sarah, those are incredibly important, insightful points and you know, really sort of given me a lot of food for thought. Uh, but to me, what this signals is the critical uh, importance of government action. So what, what should governments do? And Shirley, maybe I'll ask you first and then Steve. Yes, um, I keep on coming back to identifying the channels because the ultimate there's no um, one-size-fits-all policy for this type of shock. It all depends on where your vulnerability lies. So, for instance, our ballpark estimates on just the trade channel effects, we see that some sub- sub-Saharan African countries may gain through um, higher prices of oil, like about $6 billion. But then on the other side of the globe, East Asia, Southeast South Asia, most of them are commodity importers and they stand to lose about 40 billion. So in different regions, the effects are different depending on their net position. But then even within Africa, for example, you have, okay, Nigeria, uh, Ghana, commodity exporters tend to gain, but you also have, you know, smaller economies, Cabo Verde, Comoros, tourism remittance dependent countries. So even within region, even if we say that oil exporters are going to benefit, some would stand to lose. So the policy approach need to be targeted. So by this, I think what I wanted, uh, like, you know, domestic and international donor community is to really go a deep dive. I mean, what Steve has worked on is extremely useful because you know which um, wh- which area you should um, you should be entering. So this is what we've done with the vulnerability index that we've done. We have lots of data on how countries are vulnerable, and this could be entry point. So um, I think my my just my advice is that um, if I can take, you know, we've been examining the vulnerabilities of countries to shock since the global financial crisis when the coronavirus hit many countries, and now we're facing Russian war, and the only, you know, I think um, common policy approach that protects low-income countries is to increase their resilience. If they're less um, reliant on fossil fuel energy consumption, if their food security are somewhat resilient as well, if their trade is diversified, they don't depend on just one partner or they don't just depend on one com- commodities. We've seen countries that were resilient during the COVID uh, a crisis. These are the characteristics of crisis that were able to weather this type of shock. So if if we build on buffers and you know strengthen the structures of the economy, this is one key policy that won't you won't miss, like you will always benefit from it. So that's one. But of course, I wanted to say something about 
targeting the most um, vulnerable because what we've also seen is that you know that this type of shocks would always affect heavily women the less educated the less skilled they're always the one who's most vulnerable so one track you build the buffers for macroeconomic stability resilience and then the another track you want to protect the most vulnerable to 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 prevent scarring effects to to narrow down inequality that may come out out after the shock. So those are my two pieces of um, thoughts, I may say. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Sherilyn. Steve? Look, what governments can do in the short run to respond to increased costs of imported foods depends very much on the experience of the government, the capacity, the skills which are installed. So look at potential responses. Can you protect consumers from increased prices by giving them, for example, cash transfers? Yes, you can if you have an existing cash transfer system, but you can't set up a cash transfer system from scratch overnight. Can you control the prices of common foods? Can you hold it down by government subsidies? Only if you've been doing that before, because the administrative mechanisms are quite complicated. You cannot do it in the short run. Can you ramp up agricultural production to replace the imports? Well, only if you've had some experience of agricultural development and you have active government support working with people in the supply chains, working with farmers to ramp up that. And what we see, of course, across the countries is there are very different experiences and capacities. But in the medium term, there's really only one good answer to reducing your exposure, and that is to invest in agricultural development. It can be done. It was done after the 2007-2008 price spike. It was done brilliantly successfully in Mali. Um, that is a medium-term lesson. You neglect agriculture at your peril. Well, thank you so much. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for um, today. It's been an incredibly fascinating, rich um, conversation. I have certainly learned a lot myself. Uh, this is something we will continue to analyze closely at ODI, but I think from today's discussion, what is clear to me is that, you know, we need um, much faster and more coherent action um, to, you know, first of all, rebalance the market distortions that we're seeing, um, you know, to help farmers produce and place their produce on the global markets. And, you know, as we've heard, protect the most vulnerable, and I would say protect the most vulnerable, both in rich and poor countries. Um, thanks, everyone, um, for tuning in. And, of course, thank you very much to our guests today, Sarah, Steve, and Sherilyn. Um, remember to subscribe to the show. We are on all your favorite podcast providers. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>